Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Welcome, everybody, to Open to Debate. I'm John Donvan. And for this one, we're in front of a live audience at the Washington campus of the Council on Foreign Relations, our sponsor and our partner in this episode, where the subject is Iran, a nation, a state, a challenge to its region, to U.S. interests, to its own people. Before we get to the debate itself, I wanted to bring the president of the Council on Foreign Relations, Michael Froman, to the stage. We're excited to be doing this one in partnership with CFR. It's the inaugural debate and what's going to be a series of debates on foreign policy we'll do together. Michael, tell us a little bit about what this partnership means to you. As a nonpartisan institution that uh, works to provide fact-based analytics to, to people to help people understand what's going on in the world, how it affects them here in the United States, uh, being a partner with Open to Debate, which I know is also committed to being nonpartisan, fact-based, and really focused on public education, uh, for us, we're very excited about it. It seems like a, a good alignment of interests. And our format actually centers argument, and there's an argument that there's too much argument in the culture. We actually think it's a good thing. You know, at a time when, when politics and discussions around the country are so polarized, I think we find that people are talking only to other people who agree with them. Right. They're getting the news from the same sources. They're having the same conversations. And too, very, too infrequently, they're being brought together with people who may have different points of view mm -hmm. and with an opportunity to really hear a respectful conversation. Yeah. Uh, and I know, I know you, uh, there's a figure that 30% uh, of people who listen to your debates ultimately change their views. Yeah, which we find so pretty amazing. So I think that shows that just being open-minded and having that kind of format gives people the opportunity to revise their, their, uh, their perspectives. So on this topic we're doing tonight, Iran, any, any, do you have any expectations or hopes of what we're going to get to? Well, I, it's hard to imagine a more important topic right now. Iran mm -hmm. is just so central to a whole array of U.S. interests, whether it's what's going on uh, in the Middle East and the instability that Iran has um, uh, stoked there in their support of Hamas, Hezbollah, uh, the Houthis, uh, whether it's their aspirations for nuclear capabilities, uh, which could de destabilize uh, the balance of power more, more generally, um, or their support of Russia and Russia's uh, war against Ukraine. Michael, thank you very much. Thanks for joining us on stage. Thank Michael. you. It's a pleasure. Thanks. For this debate, we're employing one of our special alternate formats, where instead of one question and two sides arguing for and against, we're taking on three questions in a row, and we have three debaters, each of them flying solo. We call this our unresolved format. So here it is, our debate called Unresolved, the Iran Threat. And now let's meet our debaters. First up, senior fellow and director of the Center for Peace and Security in the Middle East at the Hudson Institute, please welcome Michael Duran. Next, distinguished fellow at the Simpson Center, Barbara Slavin. 
And finally, Senior Fellow for Middle East Studies here at the Council on Foreign Relations, Ray Take. Thank you. So let's get to the debate itself. We have three questions. And our first question is, has Biden's Iran diplomacy failed? We want to see where each of you is going to argue on this. Michael Duran, are you going to answer yes or no? Uh, Emphatically, yes. Barbara, are you a yes or a no? Uh, I'm a weak no. And Ray? I'm a sort of weak yes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, So what we're going to do now is hear from each of the debaters making a statement uh, explaining why they're arguing yes or no, and after that we'll have some discussion on the topic. So, Michael, you're up first. You're answering yes to the question. Emphatically, has Biden's Iran diplomacy failed? 90 seconds to tell us why. The Biden administration came in with a theory that it was possible to reach a modus vivendi with Iran, basically a mutual non-belligerence that would allow them to stabilize the Middle East. I think we can look around now and we can see uh, it very obviously uh, has failed. Nuclear Iran is much closer than it has ever been before. They were going to pull Iran back from the nuclear precipice. Iran is within one week of having enough fissile material to build a nuclear weapon. It's within about six months of actually having a deliverable weaponized nuclear weapon. It's also much, a much bigger threat in the region. Its drones, ballistic missiles, and cruise missiles have created an offense-dominant regime in the region. They can, uh, their weapons can hit, <clears throat> given to their proxies, the RGC is Uh, delivering these weapons to their proxies, they can hit the national critical infrastructure of uh, every American ally, and they can also overwhelm the defenses of the United States. They are using those weapons in five different arenas in the region and one outside the region that's in in, uh, Ukraine. Uh, Clearly, they are not contained. The policy has failed. Thank you, Michael. Your turn now, Barbara. I say no, it has not completely failed because we are not at war with Iran. And we are still able to pass messages to the Iranian government. Just recently, I read that the U.S. actually sent a warning to Iran that there was about to be a terrorist attack on the city of Kerman. Iran, yes, has advanced its nuclear program significantly, but I don't put the blame for that on uh, the Biden administration. I put it on the Trump administration, which stupidly withdrew from the Iran nuclear deal which uh, would have prevented Iran from making these kinds of advancements for at least 15 years. Biden made a good faith effort, I think, to restore the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the 2015 nuclear deal, uh, and I think might have gotten there if Russia had not invaded Ukraine and suddenly became uh, less helpful, shall we say, in the negotiations with Iran to try to get them to come back into compliance uh, with the JCPOA. That said, there was an understanding that was reached over the summer. Uh, Iran uh, agreed to curb its accumulation of 60% enriched uranium. It agreed to free five American dual nationals who had been held unjustly for many years, one of them for almost a decade. And there were not all of these incidents tit for tat between Iranian-backed militias in Iraq and Americans in Iraq and in Syria. All of that had been tamped down. What nobody could have known was that Hamas was going to attack on October 7th, and that changed everything. Thank you very much. And Ray, it's your turn now. You are, again, to remind people, you are arguing yes. Yes. Uh, There were certain set of assumptions that have guided Iran policy for 20 years, two in particular. One was that the nuclear issue can be segregated from all other areas of concern, 
and resolve on its own terms. And two, that escalation of economic pressure, ideally multilateralized, could produce a reliable arms control arrangement. Think about almost any other issue from 2005. Your assumptions toward Russian Federation, China, international commerce, international, all those assumptions have changed. These assumptions have been proven durable, not because they've been successful across administration, but because we can't think of anything else to do. And I'm not exempting myself from that particular indictment. <laughs> we're at a policy paralysis because we're at intellectual impasse. And at this particular point, everybody's trying to figure out what the next steps are while we still be anchored by a set of assumptions concocted in early 21st century, persisted throughout the administration, persisted through everything that has changed, including a very difficult situation in Iran itself that has changed. So I, I would say the Biden administration suffers from the same set of maladies as its predecessors did. Thank you, Ray. Michael, so... Um I want, to, I want to pick up on a point that Ray just made, that no administration really has a good idea. Barbara is making the case that whatever uh, Biden was doing, to the degree that it bridges a continuation with the Obama policy, is better than what Trump was doing. Do you have a better idea than what the Biden administration <laughs> is doing? And what would that be? Oh, yeah, absolutely. The, the core problem is the offense-dominant regime that the Iranians have. The missiles, the ballistic missiles and the drones, they've distributed them to all of their allies. The United States is offering its allies and its own, its own troops purely defensive measures. You have to go on offense. So we have to use classical deterrence, which has been around since the Greeks. We have to take things from the Iranians that they hold dear. Every administration has given Iran itself a pass in this regard. So, Barbara, in answering that the administration, Biden administration's policy has failed, he's offering an alternative. Do you, do you hear any ideas that would be positive for the administration to take? The most important thing is to get a ceasefire in Gaza, because once we get a ceasefire in Gaza, then the pressure is off all of these various proxy groups, right? They don't have to prove their manhood anymore once the, okay. once the Ray, shooting stops. Do you want to jump in and respond to what you're hearing? Uh, well, I'm in intellectual paralysis, so I, mean, <laughs> <laughs> I have a way out. Uh, but I will say the following. Why haven't the Iranians crossed the nuclear threshold? My speculation is as follows. The unsettled domestic situation that they have at a time of transition to a new succession, but unsettled domestically, and the fear of foreign reprisal at the time when your domestic situation is so unsettled is acting as a restraint. I don't see restraint. I see, I see steady motion toward a nuclear weapon. One of the reasons why the Biden administration does not want to escalate is it fears that Iran will rush to a bomb. We have to prove to Iran that we are actually willing to take from it things that it holds very dear. What do you mean by that? Are you talking about bombing Tehran? I mean, what are you talking about? I'm talking about our troops are under attack directly from Iran. Right. The, the proxies, we call them proxies, the proxies that are attacking our troops in Iraq and Syria are under the direct command and control of Iran. They escalated. This is not about... Yeah, Ga so what do you this want is, to do to Iran that we aren't a, already is, doing? This is not about Gaza. It's a war between the Iranian alliance system and the American alliance system. For example, there is uh, Abdul Reza Shalahi, who's in Sana'a, and who is delivering missiles, drones, and ballistic missiles to the Houthis. So you want to assassinate him? The, Yes. Yeah, yeah, we absolutely. tried, you know, no. in 2020 and missed, apparently. We, 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 we have very good skills at this. You know, we can... I'm we can, sorry. We you know, they'll replace him with another the, IRGC general. That's what they do. And we'll kill him. 
and we'll kill another one, and we'll kill another one. The United why States do you, why do you think killed that, Soleimani and it didn't do us any damn good. That, Ray, I, I feel like I need no to give you an why opening. No I'm all right. Good. Why good. There, I'm actually, good. I think there are some. Why are there no, why are there no barbarous <laughs> slaves in, in Iran calling on the Iranians to understand the futility of force? <laughs> actually, if you look at their actions since October 7th, I think there are people who have been uh, advocating restraint. Name three. Within the system... Uh, I think Ali Shamhani, the former national security advisor, is one. You hear, uh, you hear people like Javad Zarif. You hear others. It doesn't always bubble up, uh, you know, into, into public discussion. But if you look at their actions, Hezbollah has not been unleashed. I would say one thing about the, about the genius of the Iranian proxy war strategy. When Iranian allied proxies attack targets in Iraq, Syria, or elsewhere— the retaliation is never against Iran itself. Right. And even Mike was talking about killing people in Yemen. So long as the Iranian territory remains unmolested, which it will be because the imperative in the situation today is, quote-unquote, not to expand the war. This has been a brilliant proxy strategy. It helped evict the United States from Iraq. It helped sustain the Assad regime. It's, it's only brilliant because we're so restrained. I, I got to say, it's brilliant. I, that, that is a That's wrap. What makes it brilliant. That's a wrap on question one. <laughs> <laughs> We'll be right back with more questions and discussion on the Iran threat right here on Open to Debate after the break. Welcome back to Open to Debate. I'm John Donvan. We are live in Washington, D.C. at the Council on Foreign Relations, taking on three separate questions relating to Iran with three different debaters, Michael Duran, Barbara Slavin, and Ray Take. And we're just about to move into our second question. Ray, I'm going to come to you first. The question is, can Israel live with a nuclear Iran? Ray, are you a yes or a no? Uh, I, I would say no on this. And Barbara? Yes. And Michael? Uh, an emphatic no. <laughs> Ray, you're up first Everything on this with one. Mike is emphatic. <laughs> uh. Ray, you're up first. What is the Iranian case for extinction of Israel? They talk about it all the time. How do they propose to do it? They do talk about how. Namely, that you continuously put stress on Israeli society. By, and therefore divide its politics, emasculate its military, estrange it from the international community, and provoke the exodus of the best and the brightest. That's the case they make for how to deflate and therefore extinct, cause extinction of Israel. I don't buy the case, but that's the case. Nuclear weapons will help further intimidation and further stress the Israeli society in that respect. Second of all, you know, the possibility of two nuclear arms adversaries getting out of hand is real. I don't think the Iranians want nuclear weapons to attack Israel with. I don't think Premier Khrushchev wanted to attack the United States over Cuba. Things have a way of getting out of hand in these situations where you have two adversaries who view each other in such existential threats, do not communicate with one another, and have caricature perceptions of each other. Very, very quick question to you. Is, is the implication of your argument that ultimately Israel will have to do something about it? I think so, yeah. Okay. And or other actors. Okay, Barbara, you are answering yes in answer to the question that Israel can live yeah. with the nuclear Iran. Yeah, uh, Israel has 90, at least 90 nuclear warheads. It has a second strike capability. It can survive if Iran also acquires nuclear weapons. And I think we've seen very graphically that the real threat to Israel comes from its occupation of Palestinians and denial of their rights and the, in, the contradictions within Israeli society between ultra-Orthodox, ultra-right, settler, 
These are the real threats to the state of Israel. People are leaving the country. Some are leaving the country because of what happened on October 7th. That was all done uh, with the crudest of tools by Hamas. Uh, so nuclear weapons, I don't think, even if Iran were to, to get them, and I'm not convinced that they will, um, I, you know, they wouldn't be used because uh, Israel would be able to respond and, and destroy Iran. Um, I, I just don't, I think Israel would have to live with it. I would agree with one thing that Ray said, though, and when I was writing my book, uh, Bitter Friends, Bosom Enemies, um, I had a quote from a man named Ephraim Snei, who was a very senior Israeli general, um, and he said that the reason that Israel was afraid of Iran getting nuclear weapons was not because they thought Iran would use them, uh, but because it would make Israelis, it would make Jews not want to move to Israel. They would feel more vulnerable. So I do agree with that, but I think Israelis have plenty of reasons to feel vulnerable now that have nothing to do with nuclear weapons. Okay, Michael, you are in emphatic disagreement with, oh, that, yeah. with that position just argued. Yes, a- a- absolutely. I just got back from Israel. Israeli society is more united than at any time I've, uh, since I've been going there. You've got the uh, religious and secular working together, uh, desiring to defeat their enemies, which includes not just the Hamas, but also Hezbollah. The north of the country, along the, the Lebanese border, has been depopulated because of the threat from Hezbollah. This is the conventional threat due to their ballistic missiles, cruise missiles, and drones, which they get from the, uh, uh, from the Iranians. If the Iranians were to get a nuclear weapon, the offense-dominant regime that Hezbollah has established in the north will become a super-offense-dominant regime because they will be under an Iranian nuclear umbrella. It's absolutely intolerable for the Israelis. The situation as it exists now on the northern border is absolutely intolerable for the, uh, for the Wait, Israelis. Do, and define intolerable. Intolerable means that the population has been depopulated. It's been depopulated, and Iran and Hezbollah have changed the rules of the game in the border. Between 2006 and yesterday, they feared an escalation by the Israelis if they were to attack Israel. They're now attacking Israel on a daily basis, and they're hiding behind an American guarantee to Iran. One of the messages that America is sending is, we do not want the war to expand. We are doing everything we can to restrain the Israelis. I'm stepping but in because you, you hit time. You that hit weakens, time. But that weakens, we're weakening our allies against Iran. Let me ask, let me ask you then uh, the question I asked for Ray. Does not being able to tolerate mean they have to do something about it someday? Absolutely. What are Absolutely. they going to do? Okay, Barbara, what would be the result of... You know, look, Israel has used cyber attacks. It's assassinated nuclear scientists. Every time Israel does something to the Iranian nuclear program, the Iranians redouble their efforts. The reason Iran is enriching to 60% now is because the Israelis assassinated a man named uh, Fakhrizadeh just at the end of the Trump administration. Okay, for, for considered the father of the Iranian For people who don't understand bomb. the technology, the phrase you just used, enriching to 60%. Can you in two sentences explain why that's important? Uh, because it's very close to 90%, which is weapons grade. And they have a big stockpile and they could make three or four nuclear weapons. And they could do it how quickly? Fairly quickly, if, if they put their mind to okay. it. I don't think the Israelis could stop it. And uh, what are they going to bomb? Who are they going to bomb? Right. What would they bomb and who could they bomb if you would be for that? I would imagine, I'm, I'm not an Israeli military planner, but I would imagine they would try to disable the Iranian nuclear apparatus as far as they can identify it and, and, and presumably set the program back. I don't know if they have the logistical capacity to do that, but I would guess that's, that's, they have thought about this. I would say, I don't know, every Israeli I have met, I haven't met as many as Mike and Barbara, they use the word existential. I didn't know what the word existential meant until I got to college. 
Yeah, yeah. Any Israeli you meet anywhere in Israel says existential. Uh, um, so they, it's a, it is a very serious threat to them. I don't think it should be minimized. Uh, it, it is a threat to the cohesion of their society. It is certain the rhetoric that Iran uses. The Islamic Republic of Iran is not just anti-Israel; it's profoundly anti-Semitic. In my experience, it's much more anti-Arab than anti-Jewish. But anyway, well, the rhetoric of the clerical estate is profoundly anti-Semitic. Uh, there's nobody in the Iranian clerical leadership that believes Holocaust happened. It wasn't just President Ahmadinejad's position was a consensus position. But to go back to your question. Uh, I would suspect they, they have thought about how to do this. Whether they can do it successfully or not, of course, remains to be seen. I want to emphasize something that Ray said about how profoundly odd it is to have a regime that openly calls for the destruction of Israel uh, and, that de- and that denies the Holocaust and that delivers drones, missiles, and ballistic missiles to, uh, to all of its proxies around the region and attacks every one of its neighbors with the exception of Turkey and Azerbaijan with these things. This is, this is not normal behavior. This is not a normal regime. And one of the reasons that the Israelis cannot tolerate it is that they are openly calling for obliterating Israel. If you look at their recent statements, Actually, Iran has now repeatedly signed on to statements from the Arab League, the Organization of Islamic Conference, the UN, that call for a two-state solution. That's not calling for the destruction of Israel. I I know your argument rests on the idea that you don't think they're going to get to it. I believe that's what you're saying. But I want to ask you, if they did, how do you think Iran would behave as a nuclear power? (sighs) Probably like other countries with nuclear weapons. It would make them feel more important, but they would never use them. Do you know that... Michael, uh, the, hey, Michael you don't the, need to talk to me also. You go I like to, to talk to you, John. I, it's very, very nice. nice. <laughs> it's a- the the, the uh, Iranians don't just deliver... Uh, don't just deliver weapons to the Houthis, they also train them. The slogan of the Houthis, which they have learned from the Iranians and which is inculcated into into Yemeni youth, is um, Allahu Akbar, death to America, death to Israel, a curse on the Jews, glory to Islam. That is not a call for a two-state solution. That's, that's not, the Houthis. That's not Iran. That is not the Houthis. My question to you, how would Iran, do you think, behave as a nuclear power? I think Iran as a nuclear power would be, Iran has already shown its cards of who it is. It's a, it is a profoundly expansionist power. It wants to destroy Israel. It wants to drive the United States from the Middle East. It's, oh, they're not hiding it. They say it every day openly. They're going to be, they are going to behave with the same aggressive behavior when they become nuclear that they're behaving now and then some. But using? They will backstop their aggressive actions with a nuclear threat which means that there will be a series, when, when you have two nuclear powers, and there won't be just two ones, right now there'll be, there'll be two, Israel and Iran. After, after Iran gets a bomb, Saudi Arabia will get one the day after. The Turks will likely get one shortly after, shortly after that. We'll have a multilateral nuclear standoff in the region with countries on a hair trigger. That's a situation that yeah. none of us should want to deal with. Ray, jump in, please. Uh, it was Israel, that th- an Israeli minister that threatened to nuke Gaza just the other day. Did it twice. Well, what we can't say, nukes. Iran is a revision state. It's a profoundly an ideological state. And armed with such weapons, uh, I, I think it'll certainly be more aggressive in the region because at least it's, it will perceive its territory to be immunized from retaliation. And that gives you 
what Mike was saying, far more leeway to be aggressive. Uh, when I hear more of this, Ray, more of this. <laughs> what well, more could they do? Well, that's, they haven't already done. That's not an argument <laughs> with, with for them. With conventional, you know, well, power. Well, if I may say, they're be- behaving so appallingly, and therefore, it's not an argument for them to have nuclear weapons. <laughs> no, I'm not arguing. I don't want them to have nuclear weapons. God no. Uh, but but if they do, I don't think the you know I don't think that means World War Three. Well, I. I do think there is a risk of escalation between these two nuclear weapon states, Israel and, 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 and Iran. I don't, if you look at the history of nuclear standoffs between the United States and Israel, United States and, and the Soviet Union, it was very hazardous. And there were many times where things could have gone radically the other way. And I just think the introduction of that kind of a danger in a region as volatile as the Middle East no one should be sanguine about that possibility. So Could it make them more cautious? You're, you're saying it's not just a danger to Israel, which is the question we're focusing on, but broader than that. Well, it certainly is. A, I, I think it's more of a regional danger. Mm-hmm. Yes. Barbara, you were saying something? Yeah, no, it would certainly lead to more proliferation. The Saudis have made it very clear they would get a bomb uh, one way or the other if, if Iran does, which makes me even more uncomfortable. But I think the Israelis should come clean on their nuclear arsenal. I think that would be very healthy. And then we can have a broad arms control discussion about the whole region. Michael, to the degree that you do think that it's intolerable for Israel and Israel has to do something someday, uh, do you have a sense of the clock on that? The Iranians are um, about six months away from... uh, uh, If they went went, uh, uh, gangbusters, uh, wholehearted effort uh, to to build a, a, a deliverable weapon, they could do it in about six months. If they tried to do it um, in a slow, gradual, clandestine way, they could do it in about in about two years. And we're in the window where if Israel is ever going to act on this, that should be now. Yeah, because it's been driven home to the the, the war in in the north, in particular, Gaza less, but the but the war in the north with Hezbollah has driven home to the Israelis the depth of the problem because. If they were to go to war with Hezbollah now, just with the conventional weapons that, that Hezbollah has, it can, it, the, the, um, the, the, the devastation in Israel will be significant. Israel will win that war. It will win it, but it will come at a very, very high cost to Israel. They calculate that if Iran got a nuclear weapon and they had to have that war, it would be much more dangerous. Do we expect that Iran would be responsible about proliferation among its proxies, that they would not be handing out tactical nukes to... <laughs> they're, they're I, I don't see how we can possibly make any of these assumptions. But on the basis of, uh, again, on the basis of the behavior that we see, the Houthis just shot for the first time in the world ever a, a surface-to-ship uh, ballistic missile. No power in the world has ever done this. This was delivered to them by, uh, uh, by Iran. The Houthis, which are otherwise a ragtag militia with no significant uh, industri- industrial base, have this weapon that, that only first-tier military powers uh, have. Iran has shown absolutely no restrictions whatsoever in handing these weapons to its uh, to its. Barbara, when I asked that question, you chuckled a little bit. And uh, I think in terms of the clock, you're going to get the last word on this. So the question was... Would, they, you- would they give it to others if they develop it? I, I, I sincerely doubt that. Okay, that wraps question number two. Okay, now we're on to our third and final question, and the question is this. Does Iran pose a challenge to the global order? I'll start with you, Michael. An emphatic yes. (laughs) 
You are consistent. Yeah, he Consistently is. emphatic. And Barbara? A moderate no. And Ray? Uh, probably not, no. <laughs> Ray, yeah. Ray. Global order? Hey, come not, back. That's come a, back, that's Ray. A guy. Come back. Go. What happened? Finally, somebody agrees yeah, with me. Global. Okay. <laughs> we have two no's and a yes. And Ray, we're going to ask you to go first in this one. Uh, Tell us, why are you a no? Global, it, it is not a global power doesn't seem to have global pretensions. But I will say one thing and that should be cause for concern. It is now part of a global alliance uh, with Russia and China alliance that has been cemented recently in a really fundamental way. And the Iranians have, despite the rhetoric of self-reliance, they have searched for allies, great power allies. And now they're part of that. Uh, but with great power allies come responsibility or requests. Iran today is involved in a war in Central Europe. It's involved in the war in Ukraine. It's implicitly at war with NATO. There are no ideological or practical or national interests at stake here. They're only doing it because the Russians want them to do it. So Iran is not a global power but its nefarious aspects of its behavior may find global imprint because of the alliance that it has become a junior partner to. I yield the remainder of my time to Mike Durant. (laughs) 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 Let's see. Michael, let's have you go second since you're in the middle on this. I get get it here? Yeah. I get get raised time. I'm going to jump to get a a contrary position sandwiched in there. Uh, Okay, good. I'll take part of Barbara's time, too. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) The... uh, they, they are they're absolutely a threat to the global order because of what Ray said at the end. They are they are a partner with the Russians and the Chinese against the American uh, against the American order. Um, the, we know now that the, the Russian-Iranian alliance is there for everyone to see. And it's, it started as an alliance in Syria. Now it's an alliance in Ukraine. The um, the uh, technological advantages that the Iranians are getting from, uh, from their defense cooperation with Russia is making those disruptive military capabilities, I'm talking about their, again, their conventional capabilities, that much more, that much more significant. They're also being built up by the, the, the Chinese, somewhat surreptitiously, somewhat uh, out in the open, because the Chinese realized that by, by strengthening the most disruptive uh, element in, in the region, they are driving the allies of the United States toward China in order to balance, uh, uh, in order to balance Iran. We see it uh, perversely even our, in our own policy. It was reported yesterday that the, um, that the Biden administration has turned to Beijing to try to convince the Iranians, to convince the Houthis to stop, to, to stop attacking uh, uh, global shipping. They, they have shut down the Iranians simply through shooting missiles at, uh, at Michael, at that's, ships. that's time. Sorry. Okay. Um, Barbara. <laughs> yeah, I don't see them as a, as a global power. I see them as a regional power and a very potent one. Um, I see Iran sort of like a, a porcupine. You know, it, it, it projects antagonism. It stirs up, uh, it stirs the pot in countries that have their own internal problems. It finds horses it can back, creates militias, arms them, and so on. But inside, I see it as quite vulnerable. Um, and I probably agree with Ray on this. I think there are so many internal problems. This country, it's about to, to Which mark... Which is why we should smack them hard. 
that's the one thing that would cause them to to coalesce. No, I mean, would, have you no, learned nothing would, we, we have from ability, all the stupid we wars the, we've been involved we in over the, ability, the last 20 years? We have the ability, we do, the United States of America, <sighs> to scare the bejeevas out of them. No, we don't. We do. You know, you weren't supposed we, to be arguing I, that. I think they have a hey, lot of internal hey, Michael, problems. Michael, this okay? is still Barbara's time. A lot you of internal you were, problems. You, were, you wanted crosstalk. Not yet. Ah, oh, okay. Um, <laughs> And as Ray pointed out, they, they will at some point have a succession from Supreme Leader Hamenei to another Supreme Leader or some other form or fashion of government. And uh, I think that, you know, the alliances that they've developed, these are all, it's, they call it forward defense. These proxies are forward defense to prevent other countries from attacking Iran. Remember, Iran is a country that has been historically invaded over and over and over again. They have no love for the Russians. This is purely tactical. I'm John Donvan. This is Open to Debate. More of our conversation when we return. Welcome back to Open to Debate. We've just heard our opening arguments on the question, does Iran pose a challenge to the global order? And now our discussion is going to resume on that topic. Michael, I know you're, you're ready to go on this one, so, so go. The American policy, by failing to support our allies against Iran or, or offering them only purely defensive measures, is actually pushing them to Beijing to moderate Iran. We are strengthening the axis among Beijing, Moscow, Tehran, and North Korea. If we want to pull Iran away from that alliance, we have to hit it, and we have to hit it hard. There's a kind of paradox in in Iran. Iran is weak internally, but their aspirations are global. The supreme leader sees himself not just as the leader of Iran, but as the leader of the entire Islamic world. The Iranians are in Venezuela. The, Isra- the Iranians are, in, are, are, are working with North Korea. They're working with China. They have shut down 80% of the shipping uh, going through the Suez Canal. It's, it's ridiculous for a superpower to tolerate this from okay. a power that is so objectively weak. So, Ray, you just heard Michael's case for a while. In a sense, the Iranians are everywhere. You, you sort of made a case that they're regional and s- sort of small potatoes on the global scale. So respond to the portrayal that Michael is doing. He's, he's not wrong by suggesting that they're, they're menacing the region, interfering with global commerce as, as, as in the Gulf and the Red Sea, uh, violating all kinds of norms in their support of various uh, secessionist forces and elsewhere. In terms of interfering with maritime shipping, that is a global threat. In terms of being members of this alliance with Russia and China, they have, they're already playing a role in Europe, uh, which is, as I said, makes no sense from a practical perspective, from an ideological perspective, from an Islamist perspective. This is one of the disadvantages of being part of a great power alliance. The advantages are considerable. They have economic cushion from the Chinese. They have probably deepened military cooperation with the Russians. And also, should Iran develop a nuclear weapon after successive American administrations have said this is unacceptable, (laughs) what that does to the global proliferation regime is something that needs to be very... We have to take so that is, very... this concerned. is why you're sort of a weak no, it sounds like. <laughs> but I, I want to take it to Barbara. To, to your, I think your no reasons are different from... Yeah, I see Iran differently, maybe because I've been there nine times. Mike, have you ever been to Iran? No, you know why? I like my fingernails. There you go. <laughs> Ray, when, when was the last time you were in Tehran? Uh, I'm going to get the date exactly. I want to say March 79, but maybe okay. I get the month wrong. I've been there nine times, okay? Yeah. Now, I haven't been there in a while. This is true, and I haven't tried But to lately, be fair to me, but- I don't get out much. <laughs> <laughs> All I'm saying is that, I mean... I don't go to Europe. <laughs> 
it, it is a much more, it's just a much more nuanced picture. And the Iranian government has to pay some attention to sentiment in the country. People hate the regime. They hate its restrictions. They hate the corruption. But they don't want to be embroiled in a war. They don't want massive instability. They don't want terrorism attacks. They don't want to be Syria. They don't want to be Yemen. They don't want to be Iraq. And that's something that the regime can, can, can play with. It makes them inherently cautious in some ways. And I still think there is a chance to convince the Iranians not to go all the way to nuclear weapons. I just don't see them as a global threat. As a, you know, they, had a, they have a very uh, difficult relationship with the Russians. And the Chinese have not come through with the investment that they promised. The Chinese are much more interested in Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates and the Iranians. Barbara, let me, me, can I jump into the question? Um, We haven't really defined world order, but, you know, the the reference to maritime trade, the maritime system certainly would fit in any definition of the world order. And both of your partners are saying that they are effectively disrupting this piece of the world order. Does that not give you pause in terms of the Doesn't make them a global power, not in my view, no. They're not a superpower. But we weren't asking if they're a global power, we're asking that they pose a challenge to the global order. Pose a challenge to the global order. Hmm. I might revise my <laughs> answer in that case. Yeah, they do pose a challenge, but I don't think they're... Oh, so now you're all alone, Ray. Oh, well, I'll change too. <laughs> I, yeah. Yeah, I I'm mis- easy. I misinterpreted. I thought, Fine. Yeah, yeah. I'll I mean, change. yeah, they pose a challenge. I just... I just... Yes. Yeah. For the listeners at home, I'm winning. <laughs> <laughs> It's just, that, it's just that I would not over, overestimate that challenge. All right. Since we've all had, for the first time ever in the history of Open to Debate, had debaters decide in the midst of the debate to align on one side, <laughs> I'm going to call this round because we want to take questions from our audience. <laughs> right down here. And Michael, come to you. And if you could stand up also and tell us who you are. If Iran wants to push the United States out of the Middle East... The worst way to do it is what they're doing right now, which is to support the Houthis. And all of a sudden, like every previous administration, this administration, which wanted to walk away from the Middle East, is now stuck there. Can you folks explain that to me? I agree totally with you. And I think that Iran's strategy, which is meant to defend Iran, has actually failed in many respects. I mean, the the groups that it supports are often not very popular. They've, you know, they've created, they've either played in failed states or created failed states. I think Iran is opportunistic. We were stupid enough to invade Iraq in 2003 and get rid of Saddam Hussein, who, weak as he was, was a buffer against Iran. And they moved right in. You know, they took advantage of the Arab Spring to move into Syria. Lebanon, of course, we know the Israeli invasion in 1982. They wanted to get rid of the PLO. They got Hezbollah. Michael? Uh, If I ask you in 2008 or 2009, when we had uh, uh, 180,000 troops in Iraq or whatever the number was, uh, what's the chance that uh, that by 2024... Uh, Iran is going to be more influential in Iraq than we are, and in fact is going to, can look at, can look at potentially driving us entirely from Iraq, which is a real uh, which is a real possibility today. You tell me, uh, you tell me, I was crazy. Uh, if I, I you, if I had I, told Barbara, uh, I wrote it in two thousand six that I, it would, was the worst if, thing we could do, and it would wind up destabilizing I, the region. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm letting Barbara talk during my time since I I, since I stepped on hers. Before. <laughs> he was part but of an administration that made this huge blunder. All right, Barbara, I mean, let, uh, give him his chance, please. The, the um, 
If I had told Barbara, <laughs> if I had told Barbara just uh, just three years ago that um, that Iran was going to become a major arms supplier to the Russians and that that was going to actually shift the balance in the war in U- Ukraine, she would have rolled her eyes and tutted and said, "This is absolutely fantasy." No, no so they can look at a lot of areas in which they are getting a lot stronger. They're now they're now in control of they're in control effectively of a big chunk of Iraq, big chunk of Syria. Um, the they, they big chunk almost all of uh, almost all of Yemen. So we supported a, a war in Yemen that the Saudis carried on for years, killed thousands of people, and it only made the Houthis stronger. I mean, you have to at some point grant that Iran finds issues and in and and groups that have some resonance in their area. Otherwise, they would not be able to create these proxies. Uh, Dove, I'm not quite sure if the proxy war strategy didn't contribute to eviction of the United States from Iraq uh, when they lacerated the American forces. So it's, and, and I'm not sure if their strategy of inflaming the conflict on all of Israel's boundaries will not help instigate the international community to impose some kind of a solution on Israel short of its objective of cleansing Gaza of Hamas. So I, I think the strategy has been more successful than perhaps you credited. Uh, and I think by contributing to the humanitarian catastrophe in Yemen, they forced the Saudis to sue for peace. So this is not, the proxy strategy is remarkably effective, including precipitating America's defeat and departure from Iraq. Right down here. If you could stand up to you, thanks. Yes, hi, thanks very much. Just remembering that old statement of, or the adage about, you know, if you forget your history, you're condemned to repeat it. Uh, the Persian empire, the Persian thinking, the Persian culture has been around millennium. What lessons, if any, can we learn from history, from the way Persians have thought of the various conflicts, all those sort of things that we can apply in today's world? Like, what can we do now learning lessons from even the distant past millennia ago. Thank you. Uh, I would just start with that emphatically. (laughs) (laughs) I tend to view, and maybe you agree, that the Islamic Republic is a fundamental departure from normative patterns of Persian statecraft that actually is injected ideology into the foreign policy making. They doing things that Persian monarchs of the past wouldn't contemplate or consider, like this whole crusade against Israel. That is... That is an Islamic Republic thing. I think probably Mike and I view the Islamic Republic as more ideological, and Barbara views it as more opportunistic. And that's, that's the case. Are you all in agreement on that question? No. Okay, Michael. I, I, I see it as ideological as well. Okay. Ideological and opportunistic. Yeah. Michael? Oh, I agree with Barbara. Ideological and uh, opportunistic. There you go. <laughs> the, uh, the, um, uh, the thing that I think is uh, really interesting about the Iranians and the way they are making war and, and the success of their strategy um, is uh, actually what Barbara said earlier about their ability to their ability to look at seams and cracks in the region and and go and exacerbate those. I, I believe it comes from their domestic order. Uh, because it's a Persian-dominated system with all of these ethnic minorities, which are separate from each other and all and surrounded all, along its borders, and they have the ethnic minorities have deep uh, uh, ties of affinity 
to, all the, to some of the surrounding states, including ones that are very threatening to them. And so they become very good at setting their minorities against each other and making the, minor, and making the Persians feel that, that if they go down, if the Islamic Republic goes down, then it's going to be the deluge of the, of, of the minorities. And they've taken those, those talents that have been honed at home and, they, and, they're, and they're using them across the, uh, across the region. The, the problem- we, need to, we, need to, we need to read their... Yeah, read the, their fear. We need to stop making their, stupid their, mistakes. We need, we to, need, we need to, to read their fear of what, they, what really, really scares them and use it to, to, to turn them into the moderate, peace-loving people that Barbara says they are. Okay. I never right, said that. Right. And for, the, for the record, she has not said that. I have not okay. said that. Uh, and, now, and, I, we, we want to go to a, a member of our virtual audience, and we're, we're going to hear the question and the questioner, so I switch over. I have a question for Barbara. I agree with you that the Iranian people probably don't want what, what the leadership wants. But that was true under Hitler Germany. Iran is a dictatorship. We were told, so historically, we were told that Hitler would never be able to do what he was going to do because the German population didn't want it. Well, see what happened. How can we be comfortable, as you seem to be, about what the Iranian people want? I'm not comfortable about what the Iranian government does or what the Iranian government wants. I'm simply saying that I think that there are restraints on the behavior of the Iranian government because even if it is a dictatorship, it has to have some sense of of how far it can go uh, and what its people can tolerate. And everything it's been doing lately suggests to me that they're trying to avoid uh, a widening of the conflict. the, The point I wanted to make with my... I mean, Iran can't invent issues. It it, it takes advantage, yes, but if the United States keeps bludgeoning in its way around the Middle East, using military force instead of diplomacy over and over again, we are going to lose. We lost in Iraq. We lost in Afghanistan. Pulling out of the JCPOA was a terrible mistake. We will not be able to stop the Iranians now if they want to develop nukes. We should learn from our mistakes. Hi. I'm sort of piggybacking on the question of um, learning from history. I'm curious, do you think that there's anything we can take away from more recent history, like the Iran-Iraq war, which we supported and we looked the other way when there was chemical weapons usage? Um, If we were to take the more maximalist approach, what can we learn from that uh, experience? So, Michael, I think the question is to you and how to do it and not blow it. I, I, I think, I think that that's really, really is what the question is. Yeah, I, I, don't think we have to, I don't think we have to take maximalist objectives. Uh, they, we, don't have to, we don't have to remake the Middle East and we don't have to remake Iran. We just have to deter them. And that's, that's eminently doable. We deterred the Soviet Union throughout its whole history. What, what is remarkable about the, the policy of every administration since George W. Bush, even before, um, down to today, is how, um, is how averse the American national security establishment is to making Iran actually pay a price, even when it kills Americans. I still don't understand what he wants us to do. Bomb Tehran, bomb Natanz. What do you want us to do that we're not already doing? I, Iran is sanctioned up to the eyeballs. What more can not, we do? No, it's that's not, punitive. It, it's not. It's not sanctioned up to the eyeballs. Right now, it's right now it's on paper. But right now, you know as well as anybody in this room that the Iranian oil sales, sales to China 
And how would you stop that? A blockade? You want to blockade the Iranian coast? We stopped it under the Trump administration. The Biden administration came in. We reduced it very, very significantly. Come on. Can I just one one point, John, very, very quickly. You say diplomacy will work. That was the theory of the Biden administration. If ever we have seen a theory that has been implemented and failed, it's this one. No, I disagree. Ray, I, you're going to get the last word again in this round, but I'd like to see if you have an answer to the, the question. Of, in terms of U.S. military response in the region, is there a calibration uh, strategy that makes sense? You mean, if, I, guess well, I, don't, I, I first have to know what the objectives of a military strike are. Uh, uh, once you have that, you can tailor your military strategy, I would say. Uh, lessons of Iran-Iraq war. You know, that was a time when Iran was particularly feverish in terms of its ideological commitments. And over time, with the exhaustion of the population, it became less so. Uh, what I would say is the legacy of the Iran-Iraq war haunts the Iranian regime. Because a lot of the reconstruction aid was not used. The corruption came about. And it essentially caused them to be relying on proxies as opposed to committing their own forces because they became more casualty averse. But the proxy war strategy has been quite, quite brilliant. Thank you very much. <laughs> so before we wrap, what I would like to do, as was mentioned at the beginning, Michael mentioned that we have a remarkable record with people changing their minds uh, by listening to the debates. You all changed your minds in the middle of the debate. So I wanted to see I, if, I didn't. if the, yeah. <laughs> I'm just curious. We just like to register by a round of applause. Um, and there's no pressure to actually say I did, but we're just curious on the different questions, how, how you all responded. So if we go back to the first question with whether Iran's, Biden's Iran diplomacy has failed, how many people changed their minds as a result of hearing the conversation? Nobody. Dead <laughs> silence. How about whether Israel can live with a nuclear Iran? Did anybody change their minds on that? Smattering, that's called. And does Iran pose a challenge to the global order? How many people changed their minds on that? Okay, and the last question is, despite the fact that very few of you changed your minds, did any of you hear anything that will go into your thinking about the issue that maybe you hadn't included before, just by a round of applause? All right. They they had to give you that, didn't they? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But I appreciate that you did give it to us. That concludes this open to debate, unresolved debate, where we've been asking questions surrounding the threat of Iran at the Council on Foreign Relations. It's been terrific to have the CFR as our partner. And I also especially want to thank our three debaters for the spectacular job they did in living up to our ideals of having civil and robust disagreement in a way that is constructive and that actually makes you think differently about the issue than you did before you heard the argument. So please, a round of applause to them. And again, I want to thank our partner, Council on Foreign Relations, our founder and chairman, Robert Rosencrantz, and to you, our live audience at CFR, and those of you who are listening everywhere now. I'm John Donvan. Thank you very much from Open to Debate. This show is generously funded by a grant from the Laura and Gary Lauder Venture Philanthropy Fund. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. Our CEO is Clea Connor. Leah Matthau is our chief content officer. This episode was produced by Alexis Pangrazi and Marlette Sandoval. Editorial and research by Gabriella Mayer and Andrew Foote. Andrew Lipson and Max Fulton provided production support. 
Mili Shah is Director of Audience Development. The Open to Debate team also includes Gabrielle Yonicelli, Rachel Kemp, Linda Lee, and Devin Shermer. Damon Whittemore makes this episode. Our theme music is by Alex Clement. And I'm your host, John Donvan. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.